Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Special thanks to this guest's brother, because he recommended him, and I was like, yeah, I should have given that guy a call earlier. So thanks to Kevin for the recommendation. So today's guest is an alumni of Forest City, where he's an OVA and a national champion. He went on to play at Dalhousie University, where he's a three-time AUS champion. He's represented us with Team Canada, and he's played in pro in Germany and two years in France. Please welcome to the show, Brian Duquette. Brian, thanks for doing this, man. No worries. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's uh, getting a laugh there for sure, but... Kev recommending me that's you know <laughs> whenever I was playing I always just say he was the the best hype man there was and apparently he's still doing that even to this day after I've retired from volleyball so nice love to hear that so with you growing up yeah I mean obviously you're close with your brother but you growing up in that London area what was it like because I think London it's a big center and you can you can play any sport you want there right so you probably had access to a lot of stuff so what were you doing growing up that kind of got you into sport and then into volleyball um, for sure, like my parents, they were both athletes growing up. My dad played hockey and was a big uh, a tennis guy as well. So my brother and I played, you know, all the sports under the sun kind of thing. And it wasn't really until my brother kind of got me into volleyball. He was he was playing uh, a school and uh, he wanted somebody, you know, to like practice with and pepper with uh, in the backyard kind of thing. And and was teaching me how to how to pass and, and bump the ball when I was, you know, like like 10, 10 years old kind of thing. Uh, so it uh, it just worked in the in the place there. He's he's a few years older than I am, so he kind of he was my my role model there and got me into it. Nice. And what high school did you eventually go to? Because there's some pretty good volleyball schools in London. So I'm actually from St. Thomas. Oh, okay. Um, so just outside London. Uh, I went to Central Elgin. We were just a double A school, so a little smaller, but we uh, we were okay. And for club, uh, thanks to Kev, you kind of mentioned the guys you're playing with, like TJ. Uh, I think Scapanella was in your age group, or maybe he was playing up. Uh, but like your your teams were solid, obviously to win an OVA and a national championship. So, what, what was your impression of that group? Like, did you play Four City all the way up with similar guys, or did it keep kind of changing year by year? Yeah, we. Um... It was, we had a good group. We had a good group of guys. TJ, Scap, and I were kind of the original three. And we played from when we were 12 years old all the way up to uh, when we were 18 uh, in, in our under 18 year. And we probably had the same group of guys starting under under 16 or so um, and all the way. So like three, four years together, which was pretty awesome. But we were certainly not you know, the national champion caliber team that we were as we, when we started like U16 with that group of guys, it was pretty hilarious. I think we, I remember us going to Western Canadian nationals uh, out in Calgary, uh, our under 16 year. And I think we, we won like tier three gold or something like, or something like ridiculous like that. And it wasn't until it was pretty funny. I think that looking back on it now, I think a lot of guys gave TJ a hard time because he started jump setting and nobody at that level was jump setting. 
And, you know, he got a little more erratic and it was like just that like time and place he started doing it. And then, you know, flash forward a year later and we win a national championship and TJ is like the best setter in the country and, you know, continues on to be a, a team captain for the national team. That's so crazy. Like in your opinion, when you look back, what was the switch there? It was just a, another year of growth for guys, another year of playing like sports seriously. Like did a couple of new guys join? Like what kind of stands out in your mind? Because yeah, to go from winning tier three with your club team to a couple guys on the national team, if anyone's ever seen Scott play live, like with those Western teams, like just an awesome side out player, like great player on the right side. So you guys had a lot of talent. So what kind of changed between those two years, you think? Uh, I don't, I don't know. I think that it probably, we were so close with such like a tight knit group of guys. We had, um, some new coaches come in. Um, we had Justin Fish and Peter Sidler, who Sidler was a, a, a Western alumni and had just recently come back from playing pro. So he was kind of a guy that stepped into practice and really pushed guys in a different way. And every once in a while would compete and play with us and scrimmage like with us in practice and would just like show us different shots that we weren't used to or would hit the ball at a different speed that we were not used to playing at. And it just made guys so much better. So those two coaches just like the tandem between the two of them worked very well together. And like I said, we just kind of kept rolling. It was, uh, everybody kind of came into their own. Nice. So was it a, Kind of in those times that you started looking at post-secondary, like how did that come about? Were you the one contacting coaches? Were your club coaches reaching out or were you starting to get attention because you guys were doing so well at, you know, Ontario Provincials or at national championships? Uh, yeah, I definitely at that time kind of started reaching out to some coaches, having, uh, you know, some ideas of where I wanted to go. We played uh, on the regional team as well for region three for a year there uh and had had some like close contact with with Shane White who was at Laurie at the time when that program was still up and running and uh and a few other coaches and it was kind of Dow was on my radar when nationals were at master I forget what year it would have been but they had hosted two years in a row and uh, Jeff Weiler was on the team Dan Murray Scott Townsend some of these guys and I just remember being in Hamilton at Mac and uh Dallas seemed to have their own kind of crowd and it was very very much like an Ontario an Ontario group of players as well um it wasn't very much like an east coast team it was it was like 80 percent Ontario athletes uh and I just loved the like watching wheels play Jeff was an incredible libero and was kind of I remember getting his autograph at the time when I was you know 12 or 13 years old and being like I want to be like this guy <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So when you were finally like ready to commit, did you do like an official visit? Cause I think it is, it's a great school. It's in a great city, but I mean, for an Ontario guy to leave the province, I mean, like you mentioned it, it does happen a lot at Dow, but for you to leave home, like what went into that decision? Cause you, as you mentioned, like you probably could have went to Laurier or some OUA schools and stayed closer to home. So what really sealed the deal with coach Oda and going to Dow? Because it's a big commitment to, to leave home that young, right? Yeah, it's certainly uh it's a nice attraction when the time when in the AUS you have three teams and uh, you've got a pretty good chance of going to nationals. <laughs> but to be honest, I, I took a recruiting trip out here. Um, it was a great time to say the least. 
uh, for a full weekend, got on the court with the guys and uh, spent, you know, a couple nights out with them uh, and just felt right at home. It, it also makes a big difference too. like my mom is originally from Charlottetown from BEI and we have a family cottage out here. So I kind of have grown up every single summer on the East coast and have, have some, definitely some surrogate family out here as well. Yeah. I think just for our listeners, like when you say the AUS had three teams, that doesn't necessarily mean it was easy. Cause I think in your years you definitely battled with UNB. So what can you tell us just about the level of that league, even the travel involved, like sometimes interlocking with Quebec, like, uh, it's maybe doesn't get the praise that uh, on this show, we definitely have a lot of Ontario guys. So we've talked a lot of OUA and then anybody who comes on talks about Canada West. Canada West has definitely earned a great reputation, but for the AUS, what were your thoughts from leaving club and going to post-secondary, like just the level. And like I said, like, I think you guys might travel. It, it's a lot to go to all the different places you're going to and you're playing double headers, I think every weekend. So kind of what goes into an AUS season at first glance when you got there? Yeah, definitely a bit of a, different travel schedule compared to the other conferences. Um, I mean, we'd play UMB, like you said, doubleheaders, everything like that. At the time, we would do our interlocks with uh, the Quebec team, the RSEQ, and we would play each AUS team, would play each uh, RSEQ team. So it was three matches in basically 48 hours or not even 24 hours. So it was, it was a lot of volleyball. You'd play like a Friday night match, Saturday afternoon match, and then a Saturday night match. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of volleyball. It was a tough recovery in, in those times, for sure. And especially if we were taking the bus to Quebec for an interlock, it was, it was brutal. That sucks. And sharing the bus with UMB on the way up and back, that doesn't help either. <laughs> I had no idea you guys did that. So you yeah. you would bus everywhere. Was there any uh, a game that you would fly for? It'd always be a bus, and you're literally sharing with your biggest rival on most trips. <laughs> yeah, the only time we would tra- uh, would fly would be to Memorial to go to Newfoundland. That was the only time. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was always interesting, you know. Like each team has splits the bus up pretty evenly, and and as athletes, you've got to share seats and things like that. So. You had two teams of 15 guys kind of thing, and the bus fills up pretty quickly. And then what's the mood when you go to, I, I don't know, Laval, and you're playing these games? Like like you said, recovery gets a little bit of a challenge. Like, Do you feel that most teams are deep enough to go through guys? Or like, were you playing all three matches and feel like you're getting like a ton of volume? Or like a guy like Matt Donovan, is he getting 40 sets a match for three games in a row? Like, How, how does it work, do you think, when you look back at your career? I mean, most likely, yeah. Donnie was a uh, was a middle when I was playing, uh, so not forty sets a match, but he was he was probably still up there. And I'm sure he he wanted that number to be that high, uh, <laughs> even as a middle. But uh, yeah, for the most part, when we were playing, uh, my last three years, we kind of had the same group of guys as well, and we didn't really change the roster up too much. The lineup st- stuck. Uh, so we threw all three matches unless we were way up or way down. Like lineups, lineups did not change at all. And when I've talked to some Canada West guys, I think the, the schedule of playing somebody in a doubleheader, 
sometimes that prepares them for nationals because they get used to having a game plan and adjusting and the other team countering. And there's just a lot that goes into playing a team that close together where sometimes in the OUA, you play a team in November and you don't play them again until February. So you don't get that urgency to adjust or get that cat and mouse game. So w- with you guys, how did you feel like those adjustments were happening? Like was, was the coaching staff just challenged to be super prepared and make these changes at the last minute? Cause you, like you said, three and 24 hours or whatever the math is like, that's pretty intense. So I think halfway through the first game, you probably know what's up and you got to go to plan B and kind of phase in these or layer these game plans, right? So uh, how did you feel as an athlete, like how those changes were being made? It's, well, it's pretty funny. So as we were just talking about beforehand here, getting stuck with Oda in a <laughs> game plan meeting and, and that going for an hour and a half, which is outrageous in my mind. But we've we've already played UMB four times like this year as just like a, preseason so getting used to playing UMB or or you know whoever it could have been but for the most part was UMB and playing them six times over the course of a year was you you basically just knew them like the back of your hand and sometimes there would be a lot of analytics and numbers that would go into things and you try to sometimes you almost overanalyze but it's it's a tough I don't know. I find it to be a tough line because sometimes when we try to get into like crazy analytics with a ton of numbers, we didn't play very well because you just have so much like going on in your head and you're trying to figure out everything instead of just keeping things fairly simple and knowing, you know, what their, their priority attackers are, what their, their best set is in certain situations and, and those tendencies or attack tendencies, whatever it might be. And just rolling with that and going out and playing your best game is, to be honest, not much really changed from game to game. And, and for but me and the know. listeners, like uh, when you say analytics, like let's let's give the I don't know how much you can share, but let's try to give the listeners a sneak peek here with, with what Oda's doing. Like I remember watching you guys one year at the York tournament and one he was either the student manager or he was an assistant coach but he was in the bleachers with a speed gun because i think you guys were doing a serving study at that time trying to figure out like optimal or or how much he could crack on some of these float serves and still like perform so maybe what are some things that uh coach oda was trying to adjust or go deep down the rabbit hole and some things when you guys were prepping for these matches yeah i don't know if i i don't know if i should be giving away too many details here josh <laughs> but uh we we still use the serve gun the, the speed gun quite a bit um, every day in practice, just like for the guys, to whether it's as a server or a passer. Um, I kind of believe in that a lot as well, as a, like a coach and as a passer, to understand like what type of serves coming at you and that speed and how that might change how you approach passing the ball. But we we do that in game now as well. So we kind of have the the gun hooked up just to our our phone and it's Bluetoothed in. So we kind of have like a a speed comes directly to us on the bench and um i kind of take in-game stats with uh in terms of like another team's uh serving tactics whether it be their their speed or trajectory and location as well so just things like that that might help us in match but we've started using uh, a system per book as well which i think a number of of teams in the in the esports have started using since uh, Team Canada's adopted that, and uh, it provides a ton of analysis that you're talking about, like 70 page reports uh, just on like servers and, and passers. So it gets pretty in depth for sure. 
but certainly things that you need to like take with a grain of salt. You know, you, you don't want to get stuck reading a you know seventy page report before a match, trying to like dive into all these numbers or or speeds, whatever it might be. Yeah, like let, let's go there as far as like a lib preparing for these because you, with you being a top tier libero how much of that report would you look at before a game and say like okay this this guy likes to serve hard into the one six seam going like kitty corner from his one six seam like would you want to know like that level of serving tendency or because it's a serve and they can honestly change it whenever they want to like would you find guys had habits and that's information you wanted as the lib or were you just kind of getting comfortable feeling out the match like what were some things that you would prep for at a university level as a lib the university level for sure was was mostly who their serving target was so that that could very much change based on the rotation that we were in whether they were trying to attack the front court passer or try and go behind the setter you know those things type of things could change but definitely their their primary their strongest serve was was the main thing to look for at the time when I was playing, we had, we weren't diving into like serving speeds too too much, uh, but that's kind of like a general idea of how we would would approach things though of like how how flat to serve a float serve might be or or you know uh, if a guy if he's a spin server does he usually like land does the ball usually land like in the last meter of the court rather than you know being set at like six meters every time so those type of things. That was the majority primary serve and, and trajectories and maybe what rotation we were in and those ideas. So when you're trying to protect maybe your front or left side, are you like how much cat and mouse goes into that? Like, are you pinching the seam right away? Do you want to move after the serve? Are you telling them, oh, because you have all this advanced status, like he's not going to crack on this jump float. So after he tosses it, like, let's all take a step left. Like, what were some things you could do as a guy who probably wasn't going to be targeted, but still get like uh, as many serve receive chances as you can or take the pressure off the front or left side. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of cat and mouse for sure. I think uh, in my time at Dell, I, we were pretty fortunate was last three years. There was myself, Adam Sanderson, who spent uh, a bit of time there at Ryerson and was uh, a very good libero as well. Um, and then our other left side was Alex Dempsey, an East coast guy. And like a very okay passer, but Sanderson and I were were very strong passers and we pretty much passed the court just 50-50. Um, and to be honest, Sanderson probably passed like 75% of it and I passed <laughs> the other 25. So it was a lot of kind of showing, you know, showing Dempsey in the court and then at the last second pull him out type of thing and to either get them to serve me or, or get them to try and pull back uh, and go at Sanderson who was, who could cover the court very well and was still a very strong passer. So we were, we were lucky to be in system uh, a high percentage of the time. Nice. I see. I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. Cause we just had Nick Hogue on the show and he mentioned TJ's most hated serve. Like the one that he thinks the, the passers fumble the most is guy serves from five to one so the serve is automatically behind the setter and the pass is coming from behind the setter so when you're in those situations either as a left side obviously you would receive in one but a libero in a five one system like you're there a couple times was there like a little bit of urgency to kind of pass nails in that rotation just because it is pretty unforgiving that if you spray the ball either way kind of the the middle option kind of loses its value a little bit like just because there is urgency to get behind the setter is there anything you could do as a passer to kind of relieve that stress 
Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, it's interesting to like hear TJ's thoughts on that too. But I think that there's a big tendency to just kind of at least for most guys, I think, to kind of pass like darts. Um, and in that like scenario when the ball is coming behind the setter automatically, that's like a really hard ball to set when it's a when it's a low pass and it's coming from behind you. You have no vision of the block um, as a setter in that sense. So I think that trying not to be like 100% perfect in those scenarios and getting like good height on the ball is is very important. But it's difficult as well as a passer because you know you don't want to be too high necessarily and and you know get yourself in rotation trouble or or whatever it might be. But I certainly was never a, a fan of hand passing, so I like to to stay deeper and, and try and just get the ball to the middle of the court and and get some decent height on it. Nice. Yeah, I think that's something that's a little bit underrated is when people think fast offenses, they think the service team needs to be fast. But I'm always a big fan of like the setter controlling the tempo. So when you were at Dal or with Team Canada, was there ever pressure to pass the ball flat and fast? Or, or was the like, the height the emphasis and kind of let TJ or, or your Dal setter kind of do the work and, and speed up the offense from there? It's changed a lot, which is which is pretty funny. But when I was at Dal, we basically like... Obviously, you'd have like, you know, your perfect pass, two and a half, uh, as usual. But there were certain like scenarios where if a guy was serving at us, let's say from like one to five, and we were the front row left side, we would try and pass the ball like closer to position four, like three and a half, four, and not work so hard to like get the ball back into the middle of the court. So that was, that was kind of our game plan. And we would pass the ball pretty well and get the ball to the tape. And, you know, our setter, Johnny McDonald, was able to run the ball very, very fast and very consistent from that location. So we had no issues and it was still able to either run like the middle as a quick or like as a push quick or behind and run the left side as almost as a quick as well and, or just chuck it back as to the right side or to the D-ball at the time. So we uh, we played things a little bit differently than we do now. We now have like smaller setters and our location is pretty much a meter and a half, two meters off the net as our like perfect pass or where we aim to pass the ball. So uh, totally, totally different. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I think for any coaches listening that you don't have to be married to two and a half. Like you said, if you're a little bit undersized, let's move the ball off. Or when we had Kieran McGovern on the show, he talked about as a team Alberta guy, one year they would try to deliberately kind of pass to three or a little bit over. And if the middle just stayed in base, they would just run their middle in the gap because you're already there, right? So just looking for little opportunities there where I think sometimes we're so locked in at two and a half where if you have the ball control, like you said, to move the ball around and maybe make a longer D ball or a C ball set, like that that can put stress on the other team too. Yeah, for sure. I think if if you've got the guys to do it, if your setter's you know, strong enough and skilled enough to be able to run his offense, or run their offense, I should say, uh, from whatever location with the same speed and consistently, then, you know, as a passer, there's no need to be perfect in some things as long as, you know, you, you have an idea and can be consistent in the same same spot, then that's, that's pretty solid. So just kind of back on, on Dow, 
I'm curious, is there ever like a legacy component? And what I mean by that is like, we've had Jason Derpande, who's an awesome guy on the show and talking about like, they had a streak going where like Dal won a lot of years, like maybe over, you might know, maybe over 20 years in a row, right? Where like they were the AUS champion. So coming in, was there ever any like legacy or just that the the expectation or that Dalhousie is going to win the AUS? Like even you're talking about as a, as a young guy going to Mac to watch nationals, like Dal was the AU, AUS rep. So does that ever come into play or is Coach Oda pretty good about understanding that, you know, this year is, is totally independent. It has no connection to the other years. Like we, we have a job to do now or, or do you ever like look around the team room and be like, man, we've won a lot and we want to keep doing this? Absolutely. Uh, 100%. There was... I remember my first year was the first time Dal lost the AUS in 25 years. And so, like you said, like Japanier, certainly a part of that, uh, that legacy, Terry Martin, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of pressure, but at the same time, like it was, it was very, it wasn't nearly as close as what it is now. I think for like the Dal UMB rivalry, not to say that they they were good, but Dal just had like very very strong players, very strong athletes that were you know first team all Canadians. They had like a few national team guys at times, things like that. So totally different. Losing that first year was gut wrenching. I mean, I couldn't imagine being a fifth year guy on the court and and like losing that. Me being in my first year was sucked. But it also didn't hit me like nearly as hard afterwards. It kind of, if anything, it just made me be like, ah, I, I don't want to lose anymore, uh, especially not to these guys. So it's it's interesting now, like that legacy is kind of, it's still there for sure. But I don't believe Dow has won AUS or, or RSEQ uh, since 2015. So there's certainly, I think maybe it's the opposite kind of pressure to like get back to winning. Um, you know, two years ago before COVID, uh, the team went 0-16, didn't win a game all year. And, uh, that, that was my first year back from Europe and was sitting on the bench there for the last half of the season. And it, it was not fun, not fun to, to be a part of, um, now, certainly a young team and a lot of those guys are still a part of the team. So it's been two years of, of growth, but uh, yeah, I would say that there's certainly a little bit of pressure kind of going into the season where, you know, guys have gotten a lot better, but they certainly don't want to repeat what they did two years ago. And they want to get back to winning. Yeah. That's a good point. You bring up that it is officially RCQ that, uh, AUS, I, technically, you don't get a bid for nationals. Like it, it, it comes down to one spot right now. And did U Sports switch to like almost like a wild card system? I think the last year before COVID, like wasn't U of A in there where they technically didn't qualify through Can Western? Like there was something weird where now, like between the the traditional AUS and, and the Quebec League, you don't get one from each, right? It's kind of one overall whoever wins the league. Obviously, depending on who's hosting, but like the even the format to qualify has changed a touch, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know 100% what the, I feel like it changes from year to year based on like the wild card and or whatever, however it might work. Um, but from what I know right now is I think we only have the one berth uh, from the RCQ. So uh, yeah, it makes things much more challenging when you got to compete with Laval and Montreal and even Sherbrooke's gotten a lot better as well. So um, 
yeah, it's it's not quite as easy as it used to be. Not to say that it was easy, but when you're only competing against two other teams for, for one spot, it's it's a little more difficult. And now that you've joined the coaching staff there at Dow, like what kind of language do you and the other coaches like to use? Like, cause you mentioned, like, I think it's a great thing to be in touch with this legacy. Like, is it in the team room talking about winning a championship from day one? Is it more of like a process driven thought process? Like there, there's lots of ways to do it. I'm just curious, how do you do it in your gym when you're like in preseason talking to the squad? Is it, let's get better today. Or are you guys talking about like, let's go to nationals and let's win a medal or, or whatever the goal might be. Um, I think it's a lot of let's get better today. I don't I think that having that like big picture of national championships, at least where like the guys are at right now in terms of winning a national championship is, is probably not the big picture goal. I think that you can't go from like an 0 16 season to be like, let's go win a national championship. I just don't think that's realistic or, or you're not going to get better, you know, on a day to day basis, unless you're pushing yourself like, religiously so uh we we talk a lot about just trying to be like you know one percent better every day um and a lot of times in in our matches we we go to five sets or you know sets end up you know being like a two-point game so if we can find ways to to be better two points better than the, the other team that's that's most important and sometimes that just comes down to the little things in a certainly more process driven so nice nice so dalhousie you graduate with team canada what was kind of your system i i think glenn's done a great job that uh the open tryout is this serious thing and a ton of guys show up to is that kind of your pathway or did you ever have conversations with glenn or another coach or was it just kind of going to like a fisu or a b team or sometimes they're amalgamated like just going to the open tryout and and battling it out with 50 other guys (laughs) yeah i would say I was I was an open tryout guy. I uh, I tried out for the junior team when I was in my first after my first year, um, and then tried out I think after my third year uh, for the B team. Um, cut cut uh, my I think after that after my third year in my exit meeting, I kind of voiced that I was I was looking to. To most likely uh, go play, or, or was interested in in joining like the FTC, uh, the full time center at the time, like after my after I was done playing after my fifth year. Uh, so my fourth year came along after the season. I wasn't really happy with the way I had played, and I kind of wanted to just get get back into the gym, and, and I didn't go to tryouts. And I had talked a fair bit with Vince Pichette at the time, who was running the the full time training center. And they were kind of wondering what was up and where it was at. And I just kind of needed some time for, for me and, and kind of, I've always been a skinny guy. So I needed some time to get back into the gym and, and work, work out, um, you know, do a little bit of work, make some money and, and just kind of get back and find that motivation again for my fifth year. And, uh, after that fifth year, uh, was cut, was cut again, but had, had already kind of planned and had like accepted a position with FTC with the FTC team, um, starting up in the, in the fall there. So after that, that full-time center year, that was kind of when I made my, my brink to the, uh, to the B team and then kind of worked my way up from there. 
Yeah, take me through a tryout because it's interesting to see, like, or hear, excuse me, that you had an exit interview. Like, my understanding is a tryout's like there's there's a lot of coaches available, and they probably had some sort of stats, whether it was plus or minus, or even your passing numbers, or some sort of information. So, like, you you get feedback even though you're not being taken on the team, right? So, uh, how many days was it? What kind of communication did you have during? And then what's talked about in this exit meeting that when you could express that you had goals, like they helped you on that pathway, even though you weren't going to be a guy on the junior team that year or whatever you were trying out for? Um, geez, trying to think back now. Uh, I can't remember how long it was. Probably three, three days, four days maybe. Probably two or three of those days were, were certainly uh, double days. And then probably just one session in the morning on the final day. And yeah, so probably probably three double days and then just one session to finish. Exit interview, yeah, definitely like they've got they're taking notes, they're taking stats the entire weekend, the entire time uh, throughout the tryout. So it's certainly I think one it, it covers their ass a tiny bit if you know anybody's gonna make a scene and, and question them as to why they're getting cut. So they kind of have the stats to back it up as you know coaches have to do in, at any level now. but it's certainly going to give them uh, give them like a good plan as far as where you where you matched up, whether it be on the attack, on the serve, passing, whatever it might be, and then give you some feedback going forward for what you need to work on and, and improve on to, to actually be a part of the team. Nice. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I'm curious, uh, your FTC, or like you mentioned, you wanted to get stronger. Do you remember off the top of your head what your schedule was? I remember going to Gatineau once to, to learn how to do data volley from Lionel and some other guys there now. But uh, I tried to go for lunch with Joey Jarvis, who was there at the time, and he finally sent me a screen grab of his schedule. And it was it was two or three things a day he was responsible for because you were either on court or you had a video meeting or you had a lift. Like it, it's pretty intense. Like it's you're you're a professional athlete, I think, by schedule, and that's the goal to prepare you for pro ball. So, what was your cycle of FTC like uh, if you had to go through like a typical week? Yeah, definitely. That's what it's that's what it's there for to like prepare you for pro ball and that that lifestyle. So, I would. So we. Pretty much every day, except for Thursdays, were double days. Uh, morning training, you know, be like a, a nine to eleven type of thing. You, you'd have a lift in there as well. Um, after your lift, it was probably just a, like a passing practice or very much like a ball control uh, training. So not a lot of jumps. Um, go home. We would have lunch and you know take a quick nap. You, then you're back there by, by four o'clock and you're there until uh, 6 30, 7 o'clock um, for a three hour session. And it was a lot more jumps. You get into a lot more, you know, six on six gameplay. And it kind of just depended on where you were at in your, your season and like the periodization that goes into to training to like develop a capacity to train at a higher level and for a longer like, period of time. So, uh, it was a lot. Body was constantly sore. It was it was tough to stay healthy, but um, you learned a lot about like recovery and taking care of yourself. Yeah, Thursdays was our only like down day where it was a defense day, and it was just one session. And we probably did a like recovery uh, swim kind of uh, stretch in the pool after trainings, Monday, Wednesday, Friday type of thing. 
Yeah, Volleybox is kind of my source here, and I'm trying to figure out who was in your cycle. So, it, again, off the top of your head, is it accurate to say that, like, Jory and Ray were in your FTC year and, like, Danny Grant? And then, is it true Adam Simak was there? Was he kind of coming off uh, in between contracts? Like, was it nice to have, like, a vet there? Because it seems like there was a ton of talented guys like yourself, like younger guys, but to have a guy like Simak there must have been a big help. Yeah, we were, we were super lucky. We had Dow um at the beginning for the first half first half in a bit and he was uh coming off surgery so sunius was uh preparing to try and get back with the national team um and he was he was awesome and then we had Simak for the second half after he had finished his soldier, uh, shoulder surgery um so both guys just like great great role models to kind of have both on and off the course uh, and how to like conduct yourself for sure. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to have those guys on the court, like day in and day out and push guys. Cause it was, uh, it was a good time, especially to travel with them too, uh, over to France when we were, when we were competing over there. So lots and lots of fun. And then just through doing this podcast, I've learned a lot that uh, getting a volleyball contract can be pretty unique or it can be pretty straightforward. So I'm curious, you go through FTC, what was your process like to find an agent and then get that first uh, professional contract? Um, Definitely lots of things to consider. Uh, I think when I first finished FTC, when was going through it, uh, most of us went with uh, uh, Yos Koistra who Ammo, I think, was, I'm not sure if he still is doing a little bit of work, but he, he was at the time, so he was certainly a, a good Canadian contact um, for us. And a lot of the guys from the FTC or previous, it was like Jaren, Colton Van, some of those guys, they were also with uh, with Koistra. So we, uh, a lot of us went with him and went that way. Uh, and then it kind of just kind of develops from there, whether you, you stick with them uh, from year to year or what you are looking for as an athlete and um, how you kind of develop as well in your own pathway uh, to try and get big, bigger, better contracts. Or if, you know, some agencies struggle to find you contracts because it's certainly a challenge. Can so be a challenge. For sure. Yeah. And when you decided on Germany, what were some things that uh, went into that decision? Cause that's a pretty popular destination for Canadians and obviously it's a very good league. So what other things or offers were you considering before you decided to sign with your club? I think that was, I think that may have been my one and only offer at, to be honest at the time. So there was, there wasn't really much of a decision to be made, <laughs> but, uh, I was also, I was fortunate enough to play left side for, you know, the majority of my doll career, even though I was not uh, recruited as one, but also trained as a left side at FTC. So I kind of was, was lucky enough to have that in my back pocket and made it a little easier to find a contract that it wasn't just a libero contract. I only had one actual libero contract of the three that I had. So going to Germany was just the second Bundesliga. Um, the team had kind of had been relegated for financial reasons. Uh, so they played in the first Bundesliga before and and came down so that the club was set up quite well and they had like a good group of, of foreigners that they were looking to compete with um and and win and hope and trying to their plan get back up to the first Bundesliga. 
so that was that was great. It was uh, it was a great time in Germany. Certainly uh, a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, it's you can tell why so many Canadians like to go there because it's one, it's a great league to be in, and it's also just a great country. And how helpful is it for you to have a, a Canadian on the team? Because again, I'm just checking uh, volleyball, and it looked like you played with Wojcik the first year, and then did you have a JVD on your second team going pro? Like, is that? helpful or, or were you able to speak to other Canadians just through your connections at FTC about what the league's like, what the club's like, even if they haven't played there, just kind of what you're, you're getting in for? Like, is it helpful to have that network? Because I think for us growing up, you, you might not have ever heard of this club until you get your offer, right? So you got to really do your intel. So what, what were some things you considered? Like, was it important for you to have a Canadian there or were you signed and then figured out that so-and-so was already on the team? Yeah, I, I signed and then and then later on, uh, I think Rob Wojcik signed, but definitely had a lot of conversations with like guys through uh, like playing with the B team that summertime. Uh, talked to a number of the guys before signing that contract, kind of what that club was about and the coach, um, you know, any other players that they may have known that had had played there or or against type of thing. So. Uh, there was certainly a couple guys I, I had a conversation with, with Brian Frazier before signing that contract as he had played in Frankfurt the year before. So he had uh, spent some time playing against that team and, and against that coach as well. So that, it's uh, definitely a big one. It was, it was great to, to have Rob there too. Like afterwards, <laughs> it, was, it was a nice little surprise. Uh, you know, later on in the summertime that another Canadian was going to be with me. It, uh, makes things a little bit easier for sure so it was we had a, we had a great time him his his now wife um was there so having a little bit of canadian presence uh, on the bench or in the stands or, or just kind of in your day-to-day life is is awesome and same thing going with with france and chaumont with jvd we had a uh, we had a ton of fun for sure there it was uh it was awesome especially as i had kind of transitioned a little bit to the a team um, that summer previously. So we had traveled to and from all the time and, uh, vacationed a little bit there together. And it was, it was a lot of travel and a lot of, uh, a lot of beers as well together. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And in your experience, in your opinion, what is it about a foreigner libero contract that makes it so hard to get? Like, do you think there's still an impression that some managers or coaches think that, we can transfer an older outside hitter to that position or, you know, if you're in a league that has limited foreigner spots, you don't want to burn one on your lib. Like why is it so challenging for that foreigner contract to pop up for like a Canadian lib sometimes? It's, it's really hard. I think that like you said, it depends on the, the league, like not too many, not too many foreigner lives go to Italy or go to Poland when you only have a you know a couple like a couple foreigners allowed on the court kind of thing, right? Um, so going to France and Germany, Belgium type of thing, where those uh, those rules aren't as strict as they change from place to place, but that definitely makes a bigger difference. I think that changing from like a left side to a libero is is an is an okay thing, especially if you've like established yourself overseas and and have like a name for yourself and a reputation as a, as a strong passer and play in one of those leagues. That can be an easy transition, um, but just starting out as a libero is is really hard. Like I said, I was super fortunate to 
take a left side contract. And even in Chamois, I was the fourth left side and the second libero. Um, and I was lucky enough that the libero got injured and kind of just took his place for, for most of the season and played Champions League. And we played and competed very well and did well. So that kind of led into my, my third contract, which was the only libero contract I had. But even after that, like I had, I had finished up with the national team and was trying to find a contract and struggled. Like I, I was, I was trying to make a little more money, a little bit more money as well. And that certainly hindered things. And my stock certainly went down after I stopped playing with the national team. So being with the right agency, being with understanding like where you can go and where like your best options are to go as a libero is, is crucial and, or even finding like right contacts, like, um, like Trinity Western has set themselves up like a great little pipeline there with Winneberg in Germany. Um, and TK has like stayed there. He's kind of laid down some roots now, which is awesome. So he's been there for a while, but they've also, they've always had like a nice like contact and pipeline there with, with Ben Joe. Yeah. So that's awesome. Just trying to like follow up with any other Canadians that, you know, if they like, if a club like them and the way they played and the way they train, there's a good chance they're probably going to like you too if uh, you're a similar player. Yeah, like it just feels like at this point that TK is kind of the exception to the rule where if we look at you, uh, Matson was a little bit older, but I think went through the same process. Uh, Jared Davies, like Dre Foreman, like national team caliber guys, but it's sometimes hard to find that pro contract. And then I, I think the ripple effect it has, is it almost creates a gap in time with the national team where I, I'm a big fan of Jordan Pereira and his game, but for him to make the world league roster uh, is awesome. But to see it so young that it just seems like there's, there's not a lot of 25 and older liberos unless you're Blair, right? Like, cause there's really only one spot, right? It, it kind of creates a little tough, like you said, to find the contractor to stay with the national team. So was that something that maybe you factored in when you wanted to come home start your profession, uh, get into coaching, like those little things that it's just, it, it, there, there seems to be a harder gap in there where if, if you're a right side, it seems like you can play a little bit longer, maybe than a lib can if you, if you have, if you don't have the contacts, like you talked about. Uh, definitely. I think it, like I said, your, your stock goes way down once you kind of finish up with the national team and depending on where you're at in your life and what you're trying to do. But as a live, it's, it's tough to find those contracts if you're not, you know, one of the guys, um, with the national team, uh, unless you're willing to, you know, go somewhere a little more obscure and, and not, you know, make quite as much money. And if that's, you know, if that's what you're willing to do and, and just kind of, build your pathway and, you know, go step by step. And then that's what you got to do. And that's really usually the case. It's hilarious thinking back to it. Like Blair, Blair and I chatting and Blair has like fended off every like libero that's come up after him trying to like get his spot, uh, as we've all kind of dropped off and, and uh, he just kind of moved on to, to other things, but it's, uh, it's true. Blair has done very well, but he's kind of, he's done the same kind of thing where he, he started off with, with a good club in Dern, but has, you know, has been there for a long time and has only gone to France, like for one season, a couple times in between. So he's, he really like laid down some roots as well with, with, with Germany and speaks the language pretty much fluently. 
he, like I said, he's he's created like some good German roots there, and has has had the opportunity to play Champions League a couple times now. Uh, so jumping to Friedrichshafen from Duren is is a nice nice little bounce for him to probably make even a little bit more money and and be a part of the Champions League club. And for you, when you decide to stop playing, why was it important for you to get into coaching? Like, uh, it's awesome to see you involved so quickly and at the level you are with Dow. So what made you kind of want to be on the bench as soon as you were when you got home? To be honest, I did not want to be around volleyball at all <laughs> when I came home. Um, yeah, I was, uh, when I came, I came home end of October and, uh, as I was, I was overseas. My girlfriend at the time was working and living in, in Malta, so I was just training over there, hoping to uh, take an injury uh, position <laughs> and and find a last minute contract. Um, and that didn't work out, so we had decided to move home. And uh, it was it was really just a matter of you know going through you know, jobs, things like that. Uh, you know didn't have any plans to start working right away. So just started, you know, giving my time to Dow and, uh, and, and Oda. It was really, you know, I had, I had spent such my time there. You, my time there was like very, very important to me and I, they gave a lot to me. So it's, it's really just nothing to give a little bit back to them and what they gave. So uh, if that means something for the guys coming up, the Dow guys, then, then that's great if you can kind of create some sort of culture there that is uh, you know back on the winning side. That was really the goal. Yeah, it, it's a slogan that looks good on a T-shirt, but I think Dal definitely does live it with the once a tiger, always a tiger. So, wh- what are some examples that you felt as a guy coming back that like the guys were welcome and they were going to be receptive? That it wasn't you just talking about the glory days that you were there to help and kind of get plugged into it, right? Like. What were some things that the the team room or even the other coaches did just to make you feel welcome and that you had a voice right off the bat? Um, I think I was well. I was lucky that I think kind of had kind of voice automatically just because of like what I came from. Um, as that's a little not quite as uh, common for East Coast volleyball, especially now that the team has become a little bit more like Atlantic focused, and we only have like a few outside maritime like province guys um so that it wasn't like an issue finding finding like a voice with the team and and for them to like take feedback uh well from myself i think it's it was definitely important not to talk about the glory days so much because it's it's different you know the way we ran our team like we were talking about earlier is completely different than the way we run the team now and i think that's it's a kind of a pet peeve of mine and sometimes you have to catch yourself on it, but being like, uh, you know, this is, this is what we used to do back in the day. Like you guys should just do it the same way. It isn't it just doesn't work. You know, like every player is different. Every team is different and you've got to find your own way. So, uh, yeah, I now have a lot of conversations with our leadership team about similar things and they, they kind of want to know like how we used to run things and things like that. And that's not always the case. Sometimes there's, there's tradition there and you want to have that legacy, but if you can't, you know, be an authentic leader and, and run the team the way you need to run the team to be the best leader you can be, then it's, you're never going to be, you're never going to be a good leader. 
Yeah, like let, let's pull on that for a second because I think the leadership team is a good idea and it's good to involve more people. And even like uh, Amazon has the Leafs documentary and even noticing like they have a leadership team. If anybody hasn't watched that, I do recommend it. Like what is the value you see of having a leadership team or almost treating leadership like a skill and these guys need to be trained up and given opportunities for it versus uh, I'm sure at some point you were on a team that had one captain and one voice, right? So what, what would be like the either the pros or cons of having like a full on team like that? Well, that's the thing just right there is like one captain, one voice doesn't always work. And I remember when I was in my third, like fourth year, I became the captain in my third year and I was now the oldest guy on the team, which was crazy to me thinking like, how am I going to run this team? And, and me trying to be this like rah, rah, you know, uh, leader and, and command the guys, which is not me like whatsoever. I'm a very quiet person and like very like introspective. So, uh, running the team like that was impossible. And when I tried to do it, it, you just don't have the same, like, it doesn't, doesn't hit with the guys, you know, it doesn't sink in. Uh, like you said, the, if you're not like authentic with, with yourself and how you are naturally, I don't think things really work. There's certain things that you need to like push yourself to get outside your comfort zone and learn some different leadership characteristics. But if you are completely trying to be a different person, it's, it's not going to work for you. So having that leadership team to have multiple guys, you know, to, leaders in different ways is is huge whether it's just a, a locker room guy whether it's you know your own court captain whether he's the rah-rah guy or whether he's the you know just the guy that can talk to the guys or talk to the ref and and knows his shit that's that's completely different yeah and then and then also just having like maybe like one younger guy part of that leadership team is is big for for growing them and, and molding them into the player and person that you kind of hope for them to become as well and like plan for them to become become and have more of a leadership role like in the future so yeah well said no that, that's great to hear uh well man th this is awesome I, I i feel that the listeners should know that you just got out of an hour and a half coaches meeting and we almost had to push this back but i'm glad you made the time and shared all you did i definitely learned a lot and it was good just learning about your career and what you're up to now but uh one tradition we've added to the show is just a, a funnier, unique story. So here's a guy who's won an OVA Provincials, a national championship, went on to play University Team Canada Pro. But something odd or funny must have happened along the way that hopefully you can just give us a laugh before we let you go. There, there's certainly a couple. I mean, you know, playing Champions League overseas when I was in France, they've provided a couple, you know, playing in Russia a couple times, certainly some different, some good stories, you know. Nights out in Russia were, were certainly a little different. But I think that the the one that takes the cake for me was when I was playing VNL with, with the national team and we'd finished up our, our final week in China. And you know, I was a guy that doesn't touch the court basically all you know, all VNL. Um, and certainly that weekend was was not on the court. So I was I found it very strange that I was getting a lot of looks, you know, going to and from the gym type of thing or, or while we were in the stands and people wanting to take pictures with me and, and like get my autograph. I was like, what is, what is this? Like, this is, this, this is show this, uh, like you, you don't know who I am kind of thing. And it wasn't until we had finished our last match that our, uh, liaisons 
had told me and showed me a picture that apparently I looked identical to a K-pop star. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was, it was actually uncanny. It, it like, it had me off guard totally. And it was the only reason why I was getting all of these looks and like asking for autographs and photos from like a bunch of these fans. So that was definitely, uh, I think that one takes the cake for me. And it certainly had, had me thinking that maybe I should just stay in Asia and maybe become like the, uh, the Elvis version of the K-pop star on like the strip kind of thing. So. Oh, that that's amazing. Yeah. I think volleyball gives unique opportunities like that, but that that's a special one that I don't think a lot of people get to experience where, yeah, they're, they're, they're chasing the guy who didn't get to play, but you're the one signing the most autographs to take the most photos. I'm sure some of your teammates are like, what's going on here? <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Especially as I was like at that point on my way out. So it was, uh, it was a good time. Well, sweet man. I, I know it's uh, it, it's been a long pause with COVID, but it's excited to see you guys prepping and, and you got competition already and exhibitions already started and you got more matches coming up. So best of luck to you guys this season. And thanks so much for coming on and sharing all that you did. Appreciate it, Josh. Appreciate it a lot. Thanks for the time. And uh, yeah, we're, we're certainly excited to get things rolling tomorrow night and, and through the rest of the year. I'm sure everybody else is too.